Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast. I'm McClatchy DC politics editor Adam Walner, filling in today for Alex Rorty, who is on his way to Las Vegas ahead of the Nevada caucuses, a real rough assignment that he got here this weekend. Coming up, we are going to discuss Bernie Sanders' New Hampshire victory, what's next for Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar's surprise campaigns, and whether Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren can turn things around. Every week, we take you inside the race for the White House in a way only McClatchy's 30 newsrooms can, by talking about how the election is playing out on the ground in the states that will matter. Today, I am joined once again by McClatchy political correspondent Emily Cadet, who writes our terrific Daily Impact 2020 newsletter, which everyone listening to this podcast should sign up for. Emily, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the plug. Of course. Uh, and also joining us today, fellow McClatchy political correspondent Dave Katniss. He's finally back with us after spending the past few weeks in Iowa and New Hampshire. And we should mention a perk for the McClatchy Impact 2020 subscribers out there. You can now text directly with Dave when he's on the road, and he will answer your questions about the presidential race. It's actually the only way I can get a hold of him these days. You know, I email him. You know, I, I you know try and g-chat him. He's like, no, sorry, you, you got to text. Text me. only. Yeah. Text me up. <laughs> Dave, welcome back to the. Pod. Absolutely. It's good to be here. I think we're already off to a great start. This is going to be much better with, without Alex. I can, already, <laughs> I can already feel that. Let's start today with Bernie Sanders, who, after the first two contests, has emerged as a slight Democratic frontrunner, albeit a flawed one. I think that's uh, safe to say. Uh, and, and I've been sort of struck by the similarities of Bernie 2020 and Trump 2016, you know, kind of at, at this point in the race. You know, he's winning by, you know, narrow margins with only a, a plurality of the vote still faces widespread resistance within the the party, particularly uh, from the establishment, and no clear alternative has yet to emerge to him. Dave, do you see the 2020 Democratic primary playing out similarly to the 2016 Republican primary? It very well could, although the Bernie fans out there are not going to like the uh, Trump (laughs) parallel, but to the aesthetic of the primary and the structure of it, I think, yeah, it's dead on. Although... The one factor that's different, I would say, is the Michael Bloomberg factor that sort of hangs out there. The other billionaire that is waiting in the wing Mm -hmm. is spending all this money. Trump wasn't confronting that sort of X factor uh, in 2016. But look, Bernie is a front runner, and looking ahead to the states, you know, we have a story up today looking at sort of the rush to Super Tuesday and how many states are going to be voting in the next 19 days. There's going to be 18 different contests. And if you look at just the investments, again, putting Bloomberg Mm -hmm. to the aside for now, you know, Bernie is ahead. I mean, he's got field staffers in, in states like California. He's got organizations in places like Texas. He's sending his wife to even places like Minnesota. He's got the biggest surrogate operation I've seen. I was actually very impressed just on the ground when I was in Iowa, New Hampshire, even when Bernie wasn't in the state, he always had something going on with local officials or national figures like a Michael Moore or AOC. And I think that does matter when you are spread all across the country now and trying mm-hmm. to compete everywhere. There's been sort of this uh, semantics argument almost after the New Hampshire primary. You know, is Bernie Sanders actually a front runner? Is there a front runner in this race? And I think the reason that we have all kind of agreed to refer to him to as a, at least as a slight front runner is, you know, even though he technically, you know, didn't win Iowa in terms of delegates, he looks like he won the most votes there 
won the most votes again in New Hampshire. Obviously hasn't done it overwhelmingly. In fact, nobody in this primary yet has gotten more than, I think, 26.2 per percent of the vote. So I guess, Emily, the question is for Sanders going forward, you know, Iowa, New Hampshire did not do much to, to winnow the field, at least in terms right. of the major candidates. All of the top five candidates are signaling not only they're going on to the next state, Nevada, they're looking ahead to South Carolina, looking ahead to, to Super Tuesday. So at, at what point here does Bernie Sanders need to sort of expand his his base beyond sort of this, you know, 25, 26 percent of the vote he has? Or can he afford to kind of keep winning with these narrow pluralities as long as there's so many candidates uh, remaining in the race? I think he's going to be tested on that front pretty quickly here now with, with Nevada and mm -hmm. South Carolina. I mean, one of his weaknesses in 2016 and when, one of the big reasons why Hillary Clinton maintained, you know, a stranglehold on the nomination was not just superdelegates, which the Bernie people argue, but it was really about her ability to win over black and brown voters. Bernie made some inroads with Latinos, especially young Latinos, but overall Hillary dominated with older voters of color. And, and Bernie, I think, has improved his standing amongst those voters. Yeah. He certainly has an advantage compared to, say, an Amy Klobuchar or a Pete Buttigieg who are just at zero or one, or I think Buttigieg was at 2% with mm -hmm. black voters. Klobuchar is at 0%. So uh, on the one hand, he has a ways to go with bridging the gap with some of those voters. On the other hand, he's doing better than the emerging alternatives to him. So I think that's one of the reasons why at this point, because of his organization in places like California and, and Texas, as Dave said, but also because he has some relationships with voters of color who are, remain the backbone of the Democratic Party. He is sort of the nominal front runner at this point. But South Carolina, Nevada, those are going to be tests of just how much he's expanded his support amongst voters of color. because. I think everyone agrees across the board that you can't really win the nomination without getting a significant right. portion of that vote. And Dave, I mean, this is kind of where I also think back to some of the Trump 2016 comparisons where people, you know, even as Trump was leading some of the polls and, you know, finished a close second in Iowa, won New Hampshire, you know, you heard over and over again from a lot of Republican, you know, elite types saying like, well, you know, he, he has a hard ceiling on his support. You know, there's more people who are voting for the non-Trump and in this case, the non-Sanders candidates than are voting for, for Sanders or Trump. And we heard a lot of that after New Hampshire when people were declaring, you know, Bernie Sanders at the front row. They said, well, you know, if you add up the, the moderates, you know, of Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden, sure. you know, their vote totals actually exceed what you know the liberals got being Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So how do you read this right now where you know Bernie Sanders he does you know have a you know kind of a of a narrow slice of support and you would think you know in a normal primary that you know that's not enough to win a majority of the delegates which is all, which is ultimately the goal here but at, but at the same time nobody has as as strong or as committed of a base as he does. Even if you have got a fractured field if there are eight candidates if he is the top vote getter in these primaries, he's going to be able to accumulate the delegates. It is going to take mm -hmm. a longer amount of time, but he will be able to do it. Remember, the difference in the Democratic primary and the Republican primary is the Republican primary and a lot of primaries were winner-take-all states. You could right. go in, so you could come back in a way. There was always a pathway to say, oh, well, I lost to Trump in a couple states. I could go to Michigan. If I win Michigan, of course, like a lot of these guys didn't win states against Trump, but that was the theory. The difference in the Democratic primaries, it's all congressional district, or it's mostly congressional district, I should say. So it's, it's district by district by district. But once you accumulate even a small delegate advantage, it is very hard right. to overcome that. Because even if Bernie isn't in first place 
in Texas. Let's say there's a resurgence of Biden there or Buttigieg beats him. He's probably going to be in second or third picking up tons of delegates. So if he's able to get a lead, say, out of California, which is probably the first time we'll see a huge break towards someone getting uh, a substantial lead, right? Super Tuesday, because there's just so many delegates that are available. You'll see someone probably come out with some sort of delegate lead, and it will be very mm-hmm. tough to overcome that person. Again, we haven't touched on the Mike Bloomberg factor, but that right. he, we, he we, yeah, we'll, we we'll will. Him in a bit. I'm sure yes, we will. Yes. <laughs> the the, the <laughs> looming presence over right. this race right. will be on the ballot before you know it. And and I think you know the delegate math, I think, is really where you start to see things potentially playing in Bernie Sanders' factor, because if we just kind of look ahead here to the next couple of weeks, you know, we haven't seen a lot of good polling on a Nevada in, in the past couple of weeks, but I think we'd all consider him a favorite going yeah. into to that because contest. Just well in the caucus yeah. states. Just well in the caucus. Yeah. And, and as yeah. you mentioned, you know, Latinos will have a big say in that contest. And there have been a lot of national polls showing him doing pretty well with Latino voters, particularly among young Latino voters. That yes. could really work to his advantage. South Carolina, you know, is kind of anyone's guess at this point with, with the way Joe Biden's campaign is going, is his support among black voters eroding. And then you get to Super Tuesday where Bernie Sanders, I think, you know, with the exception, again, of probably Michael Bloomberg has invested the most in those states and just talked talking about the delegate math, and this is what uh, we actually wrote in our story today, you know, the amount of delegates available just in two of the states going on Super Tuesday, California and Texas, is about 10 times as much as have been offered so so far in Iowa and New Hampshire. And I think that's, you know, another reason why, at the very least, he's going to be a finalist in this race because of the investments he's already made in states going forward. And he just has, you know, kind of an endless pot of money, it seems like, as he keeps tapping these small donors, he's going to be able to make it to the end. So I guess, you know, the, the question to consider going forward, Emily, is, for the Democrats who are, are concerned that a long, drawn-out process is going to hurt the eventual nominee and that this could potentially lead to a contested convention, you know, if we do get to a scenario where Bernie Sanders has the delegate lead coming out of Super Tuesday, do you think some of the more moderate establishment-type Democrats are just going to hold their nose and say, we just got to get behind this guy so we can move on to the general election and focus on Trump? Or are they just going to kind of keep on looking for some sort of moderate alternative until someone viable emerges? You know, I was surprised looking at some of the recent polling that Bernie actually polls, his favorability among Democrats is actually pretty high. I thought he Mm -hmm. would be more polarizing, particularly after 2016 and, you know, sort of the resentments that built up the things we still hear from Hillary Clinton and her supporters about the way he behaved. But he had one of the best net positive ratings amongst just rank and file Democrats of all the candidates in the field. Michael Bloomberg had one of the worst. So... I do think, given what the alternative is, which is Trump, and how nervous Democrats are about beating Trump, that if if it looked like Sanders was starting to run away with this thing, I think Democrats would sort of grit their teeth, even the establishment folks, and say, like, we can live with this, mm-hmm. especially maybe Bernie, you know, has an olive branch and picks someone a little more mainstream for his VP. Who knows? We haven't even kind of entertained what a VP <laughs> for a, a Bernie Sanders ticket would look like. Yeah. If it's AOC, all bets are off. Yes. But um, yeah, I, I do think there's there's enough of a desire to beat Trump that pretty much anyone, and that's what I hear from voters too, it's like anybody but Trump mm-hmm. uh, will get behind at the end of the day. Now, of course, again, we keep saying this caveat, Bloomberg, <laughs> but he is, that's his whole strategy is to come out as the alternative for moderates for more mainstream Democrats to a far left candidate 
right. particularly Bernie Sanders. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of these moderate alternatives because you know Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, you know, ha- have been two of the biggest surprises coming out of the first two contests. Uh, they certainly seem to be the leading candidates for now for that moderate mantle uh, until Bloomberg en- enters the fray on Super Tuesday. But the overwhelmingly white states of Iowa and New Hampshire really fit their profiles well, and I think you know it's a big reason why they they were able to to perform so well, particularly in New Hampshire. So Emily, you know now that we're moving into a stage of the race where non-white voters play a much more significant role, is there the chance that Buttigieg and Klobuchar have already sort of reached their peak, yeah. both just in the in the polling in this race, they haven't had much success with non-white voters, and just in their own electoral history, haven't had to rely much on, right. on those sorts of voters? I guess the, the big question mark for both of them is whether voters of color are going to give them another look now because of their early success. I mean, that's sort of the premise for Buttigieg all along. He's faced quite a bit of scrutiny at this point about his record on race and with you know policing and criminal justice in South Bend, Indiana. He's gone through that round of scrutiny now. Will those voters give him a second chance, another look maybe, that because of Biden's really frankly, nosedive in these first Mm -hmm. two states. I think Klobuchar has had almost zero scrutiny about her record when it comes to race because it just hasn't been something she's run on. As you said, it's not a big part of her base. Right. But I do think that given her record as a prosecutor, there's going to be a lot of questions and a lot more probing of what she's done or hasn't done in her past. And this is really her chance to introduce herself. I I don't think it's going to be an entirely smooth ride, (laughs) but she's about to get kind of the same treatment that Buttigieg has had. And the question is, again, whether like success begets success. If, you know, as the argument goes, people always pointed out, you know, Obama wasn't winning black voters in South Carolina until he won Iowa. Now, he's a bit of a unique situation, (laughs) I think. So I'm not convinced that just because they won Iowa or did well in New Hampshire that they're going to automatically win people over in South Carolina. And, and the other thing we should note with Buttigieg and Klobuchar is, you know, they, they just haven't invested much in these states that are coming up after this because they were so focused on Iowa and New Hampshire, knowing that they needed to use these states as a springboard if they had any hope of going deeper into the calendar. Dave, do you see them being able to play play catch up in, in a short amount of time here? It's going to be very tough. But look, I mean, they're in single digits from what we know going into Nevada and South Carolina. But it's really remarkable in that the three moderate alternatives, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Bloomberg, all have problems with the minority communities. But you've got Biden, who has the strongest relationship, who is so weak, sitting right. there with fourth and fifth place finish. So I don't know where these communities go. It is the biggest question mark, I think, in these next two contests, is do they stay loyal to Joe Biden Or do they start to drift from him? And remember, we will know in Nevada as well, because Biden campaign has not only talked about how African-Americans are part of his core base, they have talked about how the Hispanic and Asian-American population are core to his base. And we're going to see that coalition get a shot at voting in Nevada. And if they start to peel away from Joe Biden, there will be even more flashing lights. But as far as Klobuchar and Buttigieg, I mean, this is their proving ground. Mm -hmm. As as you guys mentioned, I mean, they were on the most favorable turf in those first two states. Now it's testing time to see if they can really build a national coalition. So Buttigieg and Globetrotter finished pretty close to each other in New Hampshire. Joe Biden is, is still marching on to Nevada and South Carolina. Michael Bloomberg looming on the horizon. So, you know, it's not inconceivable to think that on by the time we get to Super Tuesday, there's going to be four viable moderate candidates left. That all seems to play into Bernie Sanders' hands, does it not? It does. And we haven't really brought up in the 
question of Elizabeth Warren and what her plan is at this point. I mean, she is one of those campaigns who has raised quite a bit of money. She has organized and has staff in Super Tuesday states and even states voting later in March and April. And she said she's going to stay in the race, too. And so I think in some ways the question becomes how long she can hang on and, and whether she sort of is able to pick up any momentum, because that is the one thing that could hold back Sanders, frankly, although Mm -hmm. she also crosses over with, say, a Klobuchar or even maybe a Buttigieg in the sense that she appeals to more of the sort of college-educated, more affluent, particularly women voters. So she's another factor in there. Sanders has been able to consolidate a lot of that liberal support, and that's why she's doing worse than she had been. But if she can somehow regain her footing, that would actually be right. good news for the moderates, and that's, right, and that's another factor yeah. that really worked in Sanders' favor in New Hampshire is that Warren, also a neighboring senator, fell to, what, 8 or 9 percent? Yeah, she was under 10. What yeah. is the path for her to recharge? It is really yeah. hard to see. I mean, they are stressing staff, 1,000 staff in 30 states. It doesn't matter. She had hundreds of staff in Iowa for a year before everyone else. Everyone in there said that they had the best relationships, the best organization, were there for the longest time. She got third. Then she went to New Hampshire, another state she invested in. She got fourth. And now they're basically saying you don't have to win. The other thing is her home state is coming up and voting. Massachusetts is is part of Super Tuesday. Does she want to go into that contest and lose her home state? That's why I'm watching to see is there an end to Warren soon? Because does she want to be in the ballot and risk losing her own home state? That would be a tough, brutal way to go out. Yeah, I think I, I think it's pretty clear that of the, the top five candidates, I'm not including Bloomberg coming out of New Hampshire, she is the murkiest path right. forward. Um, and right. we talk about Buttigieg and Klobuchar not having much of a track record with non-white voters. I mean, neither does Elizabeth Warren. You know, right. let's stay on the Warren track here for a bit. What does Warren need to do in, in Nevada to, to sort of salvage her, her campaign? Does she need to win it? Does she need a close second? What do we need to see from Warren for her to have any sort of rationale to, to, to move on in this race? I think she needs to prove the argument that she's been making, which is that she can kind of bridge the gap between the Bernie wing of the party and the moderate wing. So she, yeah, she absolutely has to perform well, if not finishing first, then finishing like a close second or, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. if it's another New Hampshire scenario where they're all bunched up at the top, like Klobuchar and and Bernie and, and Buttigieg were, you know, feasibly third. But she really has to demonstrate an appeal to Latinos, an appeal to maybe some of the more centrist, moderate female voters, and then also bringing over some of the Bernie people, because that's sort of her argument and rationale right now is that, well, yeah, people are excited about Bernie, but I'm the one who can kind of bridge this gap between these two wings of the party. She has to prove that somewhere, and she has to finish higher than third somewhere, I think, soon. I think she needs to be in the top two to show strength against Buttigieg and Klobuchar, at least beating them, if not beating Sanders, although you know, still a tough rationale to make. Um, but it would beat expectations, right? And that's part and of that's the whole game. And that's what the states are all about, right? right. And she, if she was able to pull out a second place, we would all be talking about it on the next podcast, right? Like, that was a surprise. So I think second place would be the worst she could do out of Nevada. Right. And it's just, I mean, quite a remarkable fall for somebody who I think a lot of us consider to be a a front runner, if not the front runner in the race last fall. I think a few months ago, we all thought the finals of this primary was going to be Biden versus Warren. And now it's looking like Buttigieg versus Bernie. So, like, stay tuned for two weeks and who knows where we'll be. 
Well, let's talk about Joe Biden, another undisputed loser, I think, coming out of Iowa and New Hampshire. And uh, again, a former front runner in this race, zero delegates coming out of New Hampshire. Uh, same case for, for Warren. Now, you can at least start to understand the argument the Biden campaign here is making for staying in this race. His base of support this whole primary has been with non-white voters, particularly black voters, who have not had much of a chance to weigh in on this contest. So they're already looking ahead to South Carolina at the end of the month. In fact, he ditched his New Hampshire primary night party on Tuesday to already go to South Carolina and camp out there. 60% of the electorate there is black. And I think to a lesser extent, they see Nevada as potentially being a good state for them. I think, you know, you're looking at about 20% of the electorate there being Latino. I think a little bit less than 10% is black. Emily, can he can he still salvage his campaign or are his poor showings in Iowa and New Hampshire enough to sort of erode that base that we all sort of thought he could rely on at this stage in the race? I think it's possible for him to salvage his campaign if he wins South Carolina and Nevada. He could make the argument look like, as we said before, this is the core of the Democratic Party and I'm the one winning those voters. And there's so many question marks about whether everyone else in the race, basically, that's in the top tier could win those same Mm -hmm. voters. So that gives him a bit of an opening. But it's just, I mean, you can say that electability against Donald Trump is a different argument than electability in a primary, but it really still dents that sort right. of front runner image that he had cultivated this whole time Absolutely. about being being the most steady, dependable candidate for people to, to pick. And, and I think, you know, New Hampshire and Iowa, for all their flaws, they really do kind of kick the tires on these candidates. And it just reinforced a lot of the doubts that people had all along, kind of wondering if Biden could really pull this off. He just seemed so shaky in all of his public appearances and debates and things like that. And I think this is just feeding more and more of that doubt. So it's going to be very interesting to see how he can hold on in South Carolina. And and frankly, beyond South Carolina and Nevada, he just really hasn't had the presence or organization. He's sort of ridden on name ID and just his familiarity with folks. Like in places like California, he's way behind in organizing, even Mm -hmm. compared to like Buttigieg and Warren. So it just raises questions that even if he can kind of revive himself in the next two states, what does that mean going on afterwards? He just doesn't seem like he's really put in place that ground game to to make it for that long fight. Yeah, and you know the Biden campaign can, can sort of spin these first two states however they want. But you know when the former vice president finishes in fifth place with eight percent of the vote in New Hampshire, that's brutal. Yeah. So can he still rely on South Carolina to be his firewall? I think he needs to be at least second in Nevada because if he's fourth or fifth, that is another. He's going to take another bludgeoning in the press and have a terrible week going into Nevada. And there's going to be more stories about people jumping off and jumping on the Bloomberg train. And I, I just think like. This, this thing is is so muddled and so confusing that every primary is going to matter until we get to Super Tuesday. None of us can keep our heads straight on <laughs> right, all these right. results coming in at once, and then maybe you get a buy on losing a state here or there. But Nevada will be, you know, it'll be another big day. We're all going to be covering it. We're all going to be focused on that, and then we we'll move to South Carolina. So I don't think he can afford another fourth or fifth place finish in Nevada. And then you got to win South Carolina, or he's out of the race. I don't see how you can sit on a double digit lead. I mean, he sit on leads at 20, 30 points in South Carolina. He goes down there and drops South Carolina. It is over. Game over for Joe Biden's. And, you know, this is all going to happen within two weeks. And then, frankly, after that, I mean, to Emily's point about where does he go from there, he doesn't have any organization. He's a super Tuesday state. So he is betting on sort of a survival in Nevada, 
a South Carolina win to prop him back up over the moderates. And then it's the Joe Biden comeback story, right? And he can go around and say, I have the coalition, I can win. And then it's based on name ID because he's going to have no organization ready to go in California or Texas. It's going to be, I'm the vice president. I was Obama's guy. Get on board. And one of the surprising problems that he's faced this primary has actually been money, right? I think totally right for the former vice president. You know, he has access he's to all the Democratic Party's top donors. You'd yeah. think that wouldn't be an issue, but his cash on hand the past few quarters really trailed behind right. his competitors. So you, that money could dry up very quickly, and, and probably already is. After it these, probably these already showings. is. Yeah. It's pro- he's probably hemorrhaging, and that's why he doesn't have the money to expand really into these other states. So, I feel like we talk about this every four years. <laughs> A contested convention and you know usually it's just sort of this like fantasy that uh, you know us political nerds like to entertain and never actually comes true or really has much of a chance of becoming true but just kind of given everything we've been talking about here today that we still have five candidates who are vowing to campaign for the next few weeks we have another you know multi-billionaire who's going to enter the race and has already dumped unprecedented amounts of money into this campaign you have another billionaire who we haven't even mentioned yet tom steyer who's pouring a ton of money into this campaign nobody's gotten you know more than roughly a quarter of the vote so far. Emily, is this, is this finally the year where a contested convention is a real possibility? I'm still skeptical. I hate to rain on people's parades <laughs> because I know they love to speculate about the contested convention and it would make it a lot more exciting in Milwaukee. So, you know, I'm not... Uh, listen, Milwaukee's going to be plenty exciting <laughs> on its own. I can guarantee you The Homer you here, the Homer now. <laughs> I just... I think that Democrats like to wring their hands about these things. As we talked about, the the way the delegates are awarded, sort of the math of acquiring delegates, it just seems hard for me to fathom that we wouldn't get to May or June with someone who's the clear leader. And at that point, the pressure would be so heavy on everyone else. Just again, because Trump is looming out there and everyone is so desperate to beat him that I think that um, above all else is going to be a unifying factor for the party no matter what. But Again, the Bloomberg scenario is so unprecedented, mm-hmm. it's hard to game out exactly really how that's going to work yeah. or how dedicated he's going to be to taking this all the way to a convention if, say, it's Bernie that's heading there as the favorite. that That's murky to me, and I don't know what his kind of end game would be there, but I still think it's a long shot. Right. And the other thing we should note with Bloomberg as he's sort of flooding these Super Tuesday states with tons of money, picking up endorsements, starting to rise in the polls, he really hasn't undergone any sort of serious scrutiny yet in this primary. But we start to see that uh, change a little bit this week yeah, when some of his past comments about stop and frisk in, in particular are starting to come back. So we'll see how that plays. And when he's actually finally on a debate stage, which yeah. looks like will probably happen next week. You know, I know Sanders and Warren in particular, I think, are, are really looking forward to taking on a billionaire on stage. So we'll see if he can you know, kind of maintain that trajectory once he's a little more in the mix. But Dave, I'll pose the same question to you. Contested convention, is it happening? I'd put it at 15% okay. right now. I mean, I'm sort of with Emily, very skeptical. I remember hearing these same stories in 2016 that they were going to try to take it from Trump and there's going to be a big fight. Now, if it's not Bernie... If the nominee is someone that's not Bernie, there will be there's going to be some problems on the convention floor, I think, right? Because we, we saw that last time. And if it ends up being Bloomberg and a billionaire rest of the way of the nomination, there is going to be some right. hard feelings. Totally. But I can't imagine Tom Perez, if he's still DNC chair at that point, <laughs> would even allow that, yeah. given the stakes against Trump, to have a floor fight between different factions of the party in July, still trying to figure out who's going to go up against Donald Trump. Remember, we're only through two contests. We got a lot of contests to go, even if it's not sorted out by Super Tuesday. I mean, April's got a ton of big, big Mm -hmm. states. They usually start to break 
one way or at least two ways and we get a binary right. contest. People like tobacco winner. And, right. People start yeah. to get on board. And I think that will happen. It may happen. You know, I think this race could go into May and June. I think that's, mm-hmm. frankly, a possibility, again, given the Bloomberg factor. But going all the way to the convention... I still think that's a lot. Well, and it's interesting to hear uh, Bernie Sanders in an interview on MSNBC the other day saying that, you know, if someone were to come to the convention without a majority but had a clear plurality and they, you know, weren't given the nomination, people would kind of raise an eyebrow at that, which I think is is a fair point, you know, and... And at this point, you know, there's a decent chance that if, you know, under that scenario, it would be Bernie Sanders with with the plurality of delegates. I mean, or imagine if he has the most votes after the contest, but mm-hmm. not the most delegates or the delegates to right. clinch the nomination. That could be a, a big problem for the Democrats, which isn't the most likely scenario, but is a scenario, right? You, Absolutely. Given, given the way delegates are a, a portion in this primary process. And so many scenarios that, that we could <laughs> that we could run through here over the next couple of hours, but I think we, we can leave it there. Let's move on to everyone's favorite part of the podcast, or so I'm told. Uh, we're going to tell our listeners something about the 2020 presidential race that hopefully they don't know yet. Emily, do you want to kick us off? Sure. I'll start with something from my home state of California, which is something we looked into yesterday when we were talking about Super Tuesday, and that's the, the absentee vote. California, you may or may not know, is already voting for its primary choices. Um, the, it's yeah. part of Super Tuesday, but their early voting began the same day as the Iowa caucuses. So a lot of people are voting based off of sort of incomplete information as to who will even be in the race on March 3rd. But I thought it was particularly notable that roughly two-thirds of California voters vote by mail, which has a couple of you know implications for this race. One is that Again, people are sending in ballots as Nevada and South Carolina are playing out. Two is it takes a long time to count absentee ballots. When you have that many coming in by the mail, even on the day of of the election and, uh, you know, feasibly a few days after, it's going to take a long time to count California's ballots and figure out who exactly won delegates in the state. So that's that's just something if people were frustrated on caucus (laughs) night because they didn't have the results right away from Iowa, just kind of. Brace yourselves for, right. for Super well, and, Tuesday. And, right, and, and uh, several other Super Tuesday states start voting weeks in advance. Yeah. Uh, today, Thursday, North Carolina starts. So I think the, the chances that we know the night of Super Tuesday, who like won the night, uh, is very slim. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we may not know for a couple days or weeks after the fact. Dave, what do you have for us? So a couple campaigns I have talked to said that they are increasingly watching South Carolina, that before New Hampshire, they were ready to write it off just because of Joe Biden's strength there. But now they believe if a public poll comes out and shows his lead only at single digits, or if he continues his free fall in Nevada, there's a chance that you see a bunch of campaigns spending a lot more time in South Carolina trying to deliver a death blow. This would be Bernie Sanders, even Amy Klobuchar aides expressed this sentiment to me. Conversely, if Biden is able to rebound and as the polling shows that he's still strong there and is up 20 points, I think you may see some campaigns decide to spend more time in those Super Tuesday states, which are going to have to anyway. But the emphasis on South Carolina is going to be very, very interesting. And frankly, the campaigns are waiting for a public poll just as much as we are. Yeah, exactly. Pollsters, get out in the field. <laughs> Go do your job. We need, we need some numbers. Well, I want to circle back you know, to the point we were making about this being such a fractured field. And so far, it's you know candidates winning which, with such a low percentage of the vote. Um, I thought this was interesting that Bernie Sanders now has the record in the modern history of the New Hampshire Democratic primary. 
of having the highest vote share for a winner, 60%, which he got in 2016, and now the lowest. He's just under 26% currently for the 2020 New Hampshire primary. So we'll see if somebody can maybe crack 30 in Nevada. That, that, you know, that, that would be something. High bar. Okay, I think we can leave it there for today. Dave, Emily, thanks so much for joining me. Good to be here. Absolutely. Uh, thank you to our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and to our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And of course, thank you to the listeners. You can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. And if you don't like it, have no fear. Alex will be back next week. We'll talk to you then.